Well, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, whenever you're listening. This is Davisville on KDRTLP 95.7 FM in Davis, California. You can find us online at kdrt.org slash Davisville. I'm Bill Buchanan. I'm the host. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, all the plans that we make in our own lives and for the world around us won't mean much if the climate turns harsh. The city of Davis, as it continues to prepare for climate change, is finalizing a plan for the community that would reduce carbon emissions in Davis to net zero by 2040. Well, that's roughly when today's toddlers will be graduating from high school. So it's not really that far away. The plan is called the Climate Action and Adaptation Plan. So what does it mean for Davis? And what does it mean for those of us who live or work here? If you followed the story, you've probably already heard the debate over how hard the city should push homeowners to get rid of stoves and appliances that run on natural gas, for example, so that they would use electricity instead. But there's a lot more to this plan than that. It's been in development for some time. So my guests today to talk about all this are Carrie Dana Lux and Bapu Vaitla. Carrie is the city's project manager for the plan, and Bapu is a member of the Davis City Council. So Bapu and Carrie, thank you both for appearing on Davisville today. Thank you so much for having us, Bill. Pleasure to be yeah, here. Appreciate it quite a bit. Thank you. Well, so the goal of this plan is to eliminate net community carbon emissions in Davis by 2040, which doesn't mean that there won't still be, let's just call it carbon pollution in town, right? I mean, it means there'll be net zero. That is to say, any that's created in Davis will be offset by reductions in Davis. Is that the gist of it? Yeah, that is exactly right. It's like the equation of the balance between what is created and what is removed or reduced or offset in other ways. How will this work in practice? You know, in 17 years, I imagine there's still going to be gasoline powered cars driving around in Davis. How's this going to work? The plan itself is a, as you noted, Bill, a list of many different actions related to ways to reduce carbon emissions, as well as ways to address climate risk. So those are two different approaches. One is about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which is called mitigation. And the other is the adaptation part, which is uh, minimizing climate risk because of the changing climate. So all of these actions together create a pathway toward reduced carbon and the possibility of balancing out our carbon emissions to get to zero. And the actions are in a number of different areas. As you mentioned, there's building energy and design, actions related to transportation and land use, water conservation and waste reduction. And then there are also some actions related to carbon removal and the adaptation I mentioned. Bill, I tend to think of our energy balance as being comprised of the let's say, greenness or cleanliness of the energy sources coming in, and then the extent to which we're either able to sequester carbon within city limits or we release it to the atmosphere. So when you ask about how it's going to work on the front end, I think about connecting our power supply and electricity, essentially, to clean sources, and that would be solar and wind. So to the extent that consumers in the city are opting into Valley Clean Energy, which is our local community choice aggregator for electricity procurement, they will see their energy mix shifting to cleaner and cleaner sources as VCE opts into energy contracts with solar providers, say. So on, the, on, the, on that 
end where we're receiving energy mixes, we'll see that transition, I think. It's in some ways more challenging to think about the ways we use energy and emissions we emit. But of course, uh, we can, as individuals, decarbonize our lifestyles through electrifying our homes, electrifying our transport, simply using fossil fuel devices and vehicles less. And there, it's about how the city can provide sets of incentives and regulations that permit that transition. And I think we have to acknowledge also that a lot of what we do is going to be structured and framed by what happens at the federal level and the state level. So we're really trying to push the envelope on that. But it, it both in terms of financing and in terms of making it easier for individuals to shift their lifestyles, action at higher levels will help. The last okay. thing I want to say in response to your question, uh, sorry to, to prattle on for a bit, but it's important to acknowledge that the notion of carbon neutrality is a contested concept. For many people, many jurisdictions, that means can you offset the emissions that are coming from fossil fuel sources through other actions? It might be sequestration, agricultural soils, et cetera. For some people, it means on the front end, simply eliminating all polluting energy sources and arriving at a place where you're actually not emitting carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. So it's a contested concept. Some of what you were describing, a lot of that would be kind of behind the scenes. People do think about the mix of their energy bill and where their electricity comes from, but a lot of people just get it and pay it and move on. What are some of the visible changes that we're likely to see? There's a couple that stuck in the report. One that sounded kind of pleasant, really, was more trees in town. One that I could see turning into its own little issue is it kind of encourages more paid parking downtown. You know, at least it encourages the completion of pilot programs and evaluating. That's been an issue in the past. But those are just two items. What are one or two things that people are likely to notice as this plan kicks in? Yeah, you know, I think there's going to be some really clear changes. One will be the, let's say, electricity generating storage and charging infrastructure. So hopefully we'll see solar panels everywhere. We'll see solar panels on private roofs. We'll see it on commercial properties. We'll see it on parking lot structures. And even though it's a little less visible, I think you will see to some extent the creation of a battery infrastructure. So that might be decentralized in a sense of in homes. It might be on the neighborhood level. It might be more visible like you see transformer facilities right now. Uh, you might see some collective storage. And the infrastructure itself, so to have charging facilities, not only in our homes, but at businesses and parking lots, city facilities, so that people think of it as a something that they see as a necessary and expected part of the landscape to be able to charge. Charging a car here, right? That's what you're talking about, the charging station? A car and certainly micro-mobility options like electric bikes as well, but primarily cars. And the last piece I would say, which has been around with us for a century, and I think there is sort of a resurgent movement because of climate change is public transit, just to see less cars off the road and more people who are using public transit and, of course, using micro-mobility modalities like bikes, like electric bikes, like uh, other modes of transport. I think maybe the the average listener or the average person in Davis may not completely understand what we talk about when we say electrification. So essentially use of natural gas or other types of fuel 
release greenhouse gases, whereas electricity, which can be created by solar or wind, as Bapu said, is a renewable fuel source. So when we talk about electrification, we're basically talking about renewables rather than fuels that create greenhouse gases and further damage our environment. And electrification does refer to both building energy and to transportation or electric vehicles, along with active transportation like transit and bikes. But it's a lot easier when Bapu talks about regulations, it's easier for a city or a local government to work with property owners to do building electrification than it is to require people to drive electric cars, for example. So a lot of the plan that is trying to create this balance between emissions created and emissions reduced does talk about building energy because that's where we can have a larger impact. Right now we're doing all of our building energy actions through education and outreach. And then we will be doing some of the same for vehicles. But this plan with these actions in it is still an in-progress project because we need to be on the pathway to reducing greenhouse gases and responding to climate risk. And so each action needs some further work as well as commitment by community members to see the importance of it. So getting the plan adopted will help us be at the place where we can work with our community to prioritize this with individual decisions that residents in Davis and businesses can make. Yeah, it seems pretty clear in the plan that there's references to, you know, this is a work in progress. There's going to be new innovations, new things come along, probably new understandings. And I know that the plan gets updated every so often. I know you also plan to post progress online in terms of emissions reductions. And I, I take your point too about the, the voluntary aspect. That's the way the natural gas appliances thing settled out, right? The idea was we'll encourage people, homeowners, I'm thinking now, to replace them as they sell a home or certainly as their appliances wear out, rather than require it at the point of sale, which was an issue for a while. How are you going to enforce the enforceable parts of this when the time comes? Well, some of it is going to have to be community understanding and engagement, and some of it will be ordinances or requirements that could be at the federal level, the state level, or the local level. And a lot of that will evolve. As you say, the electrification of our buildings was the biggest issue that was somewhat contentious in the community. We did have an action for electrification requirements at point of sale, but that was removed very early on because it was clear that that was not supported by the community. And what's important for people to realize is this is a community-driven plan. We are not trying to force anything on our community, but we are trying to address people's interest and city council's direction to be carbon neutral by 2040. And that does require some actions that will be significant and will make people have to have changes in their lives. The other action that you mentioned was electrification when appliances or systems in homes are, you know, they're, they're either done or they needed they need to be replaced whether it's a remodel or replacing appliances 
And that the big change from when the plan was brought to city council in December and now is that we are not envisioning drafting an ordinance for the next three years. The plan said that within three years, an ordinance would be developed to require people to replace their heating and air systems, their water heaters, other appliances within their home when they want to get a permit with an appliance that is either electric or a renewable fuel. And that is no longer the case. We're doing that based on education and outreach. That doesn't mean that the next building code cycle might not require people to switch to electric appliances or that Davis might not consider an ordinance after three years, once we've had the opportunity to track our success with a voluntary approach. We're talking with Kara Dana Lux and Bapu Vaitla about the City of Davis Climate Action and Adaptation Plan. My name is Bill Buchanan. This is Davisville on KDRT LP 95.7 FM in Davis, California. Carrie is the city's project manager for the plan, and Bapu is a member of the Davis City Council. It's worth revisiting the the goals for this. I mean, the whole reason that Davis and much of the world is looking at this is because the climate is changing and there's a desire to adapt to it, but also to try to address it, try to reduce it. And obviously that involves some sacrifice. One of the things that is, it's a paradox almost. Well, if someone is listening to this broadcast 50 years from now and the predictions come true, they would be saying, why didn't you drop everything and act with great urgency and deal with this? But in the moment today, when the reservoirs are refilling and the air is clean and, and individually, things seem fine, more or less. And it's not as if there aren't a lot of other urgent problems that demand our attention and need to be addressed. And of course, a further complication is you could have something, I looked this up, the, the California's wildfires. The, the Los Angeles Times reported that the 2020 season released about 127 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent into the atmosphere. The prior 18 years of reduction efforts in California had only reduced 65 million. So one really bad wildfire year more than wiped out the gains that had been made in the prior 18 years. You know, it does make you wonder, are we aiming at the right target here? Should we be aiming at, I don't know, coal plants overseas? And yet it brings you back. I guess I'm kind of going on a soapbox here, right? But I want to know your thoughts about this. It brings us back to the idea of, well, if this matters to us, this is something we want to do to do something and maybe leading by example. And maybe you're also trying to get a big result out of an accumulation of smaller things. Davis being in the scheme of things, a smaller thing here. So I just said a whole bunch of things. What of that makes sense? What of that resonates? Where is it wrong? Have at it. No, it's a great set of questions. And I'll just preface this by saying that um, this is an emotional issue for me. So Carrie, if you know, if I start to go off the rails here, just interrupt. <laughs> if I if I start to say anything that makes your job harder, please just interrupt. But yeah. I'll just be very open and honest, you know, and you can ask follow-up questions. But one of your premises that I sort I disagree with is that it's that it's okay now. Uh, it's not. It's not okay. You know, I, I have mostly worked abroad for the last two decades in rural areas in in uh, Ethiopia and India and Brazil primarily, uh, and focused on child malnutrition, chronic child malnutrition. And everywhere I went, droughts are occurring with increasing frequency. Everywhere I went, there's novel agricultural pest outbreaks. 
everywhere I go that's dependent on the oceans for food, temperature is rising, coral reefs are dying, fish catches are falling. This is also a function of overharvesting in conjunction with the changes in the aquatic ecosystems. And really, I try to say these kind of anecdotes in ways that don't sound like I'm intentionally trying to pull on people's heartstrings, but really there's no other way to put it. Climate change is transforming ecosystems in such a way that people are undergoing drastic livelihoods changes that eventually result in phenomena like child hunger and child death. That's just the way things are right now. So, you know, I followed, for example, the electrification mandate issue very closely. I wasn't on council when that vote was taken. I happened to disagree with the vote that was taken. I do understand the sentiments of, and we, we should be careful with this phrase community because there's a lot of different views in the community. And there was one section of the community that really was concerned about mandated electrification. They were concerned for a wide range of issues, let me point out. Uh, some because they genuinely had concerns about how low-income folks or seniors whose equity is illiquid, tied up in their house, were going to cope with these increasing costs. And some, you know, I think they were motivated by, you know, why at this point should we be forced to do something when the state is not mandating it, the feds are not mandating it, and it's going to effectively decrease the value of my property, either because I have to invest now or the point of sale or when I purchase the house, whatever it is. And for me, I guess what I struggle with is the fact that for the last 150 years, rich countries have grown, have built their economies, have grown prosperous by emitting immense magnitudes of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that are now hurting the poorest folks in the world disproportionately that are causing, in fact, wars, right? I mean, conflicts like Syria, at least some fraction of what's happening there is explained by increasing desperation, dislocation of people. And to me, it's just, it's fundamentally unjust for a, a rich country who's benefited really off the suffering of the poor for a century and a half, not to be willing to make relatively minor and affordable lifestyle changes in order to address that suffering now. That, that bothers me. And to uh, address another part of your question, this is, a, this is a democratic process. We'll have it. We'll have different values, different positions, and then we'll vote either through our representatives or on the ballot. And then we'll have to live with the outcomes. And some people will not be happy with the outcomes of the vote. And when we do pass ordinances, we'll enforce them in the same way that we enforce other ordinances through fines or whatever else, or you know, code enforcement. The greater challenge, though, is the culture change that's required for us to move past the kind of debates around narrow mandate policy and really think about what you asked before is the world that we can see in our heads that is just, that is reflective of a sensible lifestyle in terms of environmental impact. And the irony of this whole conversation to me, and I, I recognize the difficulty of transition, but the irony is that world looks beautiful in our heads, right? It's, it's a green world. Like you said, it's filled with trees. It's filled with pedestrians. It's filled with folks who can bike or walk and not be afraid of what's going to happen on the streets. Because we know, actually, leading causes of death worldwide, autos are implicated, right? So all of these problems that we recognize as problems, we're being asked right now to 
not sacrifice something that's going to make us we less well off, but change our lifestyles in a way that's going to get us closer to a world that we find more beautiful and more livable. I do think there's a problem. I think that part of the paradox is it's a little bit like you can feel healthy and have a heart attack coming. You can look out the window and think, well, this is a nice day. This doesn't seem like a crisis compared to a war or some of the injustice we have. And to me, that makes it, as an issue, harder to achieve the change because it doesn't feel imminent. You know, it doesn't feel like a fire. I want to make sure I, I was clear that yeah. I, I do think there is a problem. I just think that on a nice day, it doesn't seem like it. And that makes it difficult for us. Exactly. For us, right? But but yeah. for, for so many others, right now, it's not imminent. It's already happened and it's already happening. And, and that, I think, it's the failure on our part of imagination. It's a failure of recognizing a fundamental truth. It's that our well-being ultimately does depend on the well-being of other people. And if we think that our anxiety, whether it's about terrorism or the price of gas or any source of our anxiety and fear, you, you trace that, that, our suffering, right? Our psychological suffering or physical suffering, trace that chain of causation far enough and you will arrive at someone else's suffering that's mm -hmm. physical that mm -hmm. has to do with things like hunger and infectious disease and speaking of which right <laughs> I, i'm trying not to get on the soapbox but you know this is a very important point is that we look out the window and think yeah it's a nice day things are fine we just went through three years where you know at least a million and probably a lot more americans died americans right our parents died right and and because of COVID, you're talking about because of COVID, right? But yeah. but you know, one of the major impacts, maybe the major impact of climate change on human well-being going forward is going to be the prevalence of novel disease outbreaks. And this is for me, like, uh, okay, you know, yes, it's a nice day outside, and yes, a million people died, and this is the world that we live in and can insulate ourselves from. Yeah, if I could just add a few words. Babu, nothing you said was anything different than what I would say. Sometimes I have to be very careful not to present things too strongly, but I really appreciate all of your words and your thoughts. And I think that all of that is very true. I think everything that we are experiencing is interconnected and climate change is related to things like infectious disease and the extreme weather patterns that we're seeing, which everything is more intense, more rainfall in shorter time periods, in some areas, drought, less snowpack. These are things that impact us right here. Wildfires are a huge issue, and that is directly related to climate change. So we have to address these patterns, and it's impacting us here, not just elsewhere in the world. And the other part of it is the equity and climate justice. And this plan really makes an effort to address those issues and recognizing that there are worldwide impacts because of what people in wealthier countries choose to do and not do, but also that within our community, we have impacts of equity and climate justice. So you don't have to go to Ethiopia or Brazil to find those impacts and we need to address that. And we need to, and the plan attempts to address the needs of people in disadvantaged and historically marginalized communities in order to meet the needs of everyone. It's not just 
to take care of disadvantaged people. It's because once you address those needs, you also have positive benefits for people that are not so disadvantaged. And so that's the lens that this plan takes a look at. And I do think that behavior change is hard, but sometimes people don't really understand the unintended consequences of saying, oh, well, we'll just change this and it will be fine because there's other places to fill the gap Well, the, of greenhouse gas emissions reduction. I think we need to do everything we can that is in our power. And I will just say that it's a little concerning to me, the, the sort of rhetoric in the community and talking about building energy as mandates when local governments and state and federal do lots of ordinances and requirements for community members related to health and safety and you know just the functioning of our of our lives and our systems and so to think that this is somehow exempt from that when it's such an important issue makes me think that we need to take a better look at what really can we do and what are what are some of our choices. So I don't want to take too much time because I'll get on a soapbox <laughs> when given the opportunity. I, I want to say I very much appreciate the depth of conviction I'm hearing from both of you. That's very engaging. And obviously, it's an important subject. The thought that you're putting into it, I think, is quite appropriate. What needs to happen for this draft plan to become the plan? The plan itself is gonna be heard by city council, I believe in early April, if that's right, Carrie. Uh, so, you know, we, we've seen it a couple of times, uh, or city council, I actually uh, have not been on city council while it's come before us, but we are just about ready to adopt the final text of the plan. And really it's a statement of principles, right? It's not law, it's not ordinances, it's, it's a vision. And it's a vision that will be updated periodically the next time in, in a couple of years, actually in 2025. But for us as city council and us as a community, the next steps are very important, which is, okay, we've arrived at 100 actions, 28 priorities, but we know that we need to prioritize within the priority set and say this year, what are the three, four, maybe five actions that we want to become law? And it doesn't necessarily need to be mandates, but it does need to be policies that we would place at the top of the list in terms of the climate impact they're going to have in terms of the greenhouse gas reduction impact. Any one other thing or that you really want people to know about this plan, and then I, I need to wrap this discussion up. I think what I would like people to know is that, you know, the word sacrifice is not something you're supposed to toss out as a politician or you know, when you're campaigning or when you're governing. But the reality is that the status quo of how we live is unacceptable, and that's going to demand some lifestyle changes. That's going to demand resources. That's going to demand some of us saying that um, you know a bit of our private wealth is going to need to be put in the public sphere somehow for the benefit of this collective transformation. I don't know what mechanism that can look like, but it, it, no one is exempt from the necessity of thinking about how we transform what we have personally into a collective good. So okay. I, I would say that uh, the idea stage is nearing the end of its first phase, but now it's the implementation stage where all of us need to be involved and give, give of ourselves. All right. Well, we've been talking with Bapu Vaidla, who is a member of the Davis City Council, and Carrie Dana-Lux, 
who's the project manager for the city's Climate Action and Adaptation Plan. Carrie and Bapu, I very much appreciate this conversation today. I appreciate the energy you bring to this. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bill. Really a pleasure to be here and happy to come back. Thanks so much. I'm Bill Buchanan. This is Davisville on KDRT LP 95.7 FM in Davis, California. Thank you for listening.